0: Yes, we've been uh, transitioning out of live stream and we've been doing that just by uh, really getting people to connect who's out there, who needs it. So I've been having just wonderful interactions with so many people, writing me emails. Uh, A lot of people that I didn't even know, I guess you could say go to Crossroads by watching live stream. And uh, this one lady was just saying how she has just... uh, for the last 10 years been gobbling up all of our messages and watching live stream, can I please use it? And one of the things she said is she said, and that Neil Martin, his series on Ephesians, I think I've listened to it 10 times and I've given it to all my friends. And it just, uh, it's been such a blessing when I look back at the past of where this church has been and the kind of people that he's brought here and the people that we could partner with Um, and then where we are today. These are great days. These are great days for the gospel. And I think that's a segue into what we're going to look at this morning, the prayers of Paul. We're going to finish and conclude this series. As we've noticed, uh, scholars have identified at least 40 plus prayers of Paul in his New Testament writings because Paul can't write to the churches without just breaking out into prayer for them. It's because prayer is uh, so central to Paul's life. It's central to Paul's ministry, which is why in these last weeks we're, we're sitting at Paul's feet. And we're asking him, teach us to pray. And one of the things that I've just been struck by myself uh, in this whole, whole series is not just by what Paul does pray, but also what he does not pray And one of my uh, recent trips to Israel, which was just a couple weeks ago, got back a couple days ago, actually. Um, Just incredible to be back there leading a tour. And on this tour, we had a Jewish rabbi that joined us. Uh, He just decided to join it, and he's incredibly interested in Jesus. Um, In fact, he uh, got a um, seminary degree from Orr Roberts University with an emphasis on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And uh, one day, we were actually talking about prayer, and he he said something kind of interesting to me. He said, you know, Jews and Christians pray so differently. And I just asked him, how so? And he said, well, Jewish prayer is much more centered on God's character. Uh, We praise God uh, all the time for who God is. Uh, We spend a lot of time in thanksgiving thanking him, and it seems that Christians just kind of run to making their their requests to God and uh, almost like God is a Santa Claus. And I thought, man, that's a little bit like, sounds like Paul. And I thought, yeah, Paul's Jewish. Um, and, and I think Paul's prayers reflect this. In fact, Jesus even says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not pray like the Gentiles who just heap all the, these requests before God. Now listen, while I don't want us through a series like this to become paranoid, where we have to like, just perform the right prayers, uh, because at the end of the day, prayer is simple. It's simply talking to God. It's offering to God our hearts. However, I do think that we can grow in how we talk to God. I mean, just imagine a friendship where the friend, all they ever did was just ask for things. Ask, 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 can you do this? Can you get me this? Can, can you help me with this? And yet, I also think about this in light of the fact that Jesus taught us to pray by saying our Father, and God is our Father, and I'm a father, and I love it when my kids need my help. I love it when they ask things of me. But I also like to hang out with them. I like to be with them. I like to just talk about life. So hopefully in this series, like, we're just... We're learning. We, we can continue to grow in how to pray. Today, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. You guys sit for my words, but we love to stand for the word of God. So let's stand. I know it might be a harder um, book to find in your New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For context, I'm going to begin reading at Verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our stress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, night and day, says Paul, we pray most passionately, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now here's Paul's prayer for the church, for the Christians in Thessaloniki. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow, literally the word there is abound and abound, for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, so let's uh, just step into the context here. Let's, Let's talk about the people that Paul is writing this to, this letter. Uh, that we call 1 Thessalonians, um, and, and also that Paul's praying for in this letter. So on Paul's second missionary journey, I just want to show you this. Uh, his, his first missionary starts in the yellow in Syria. It goes into the purple, uh, and then it goes into the green, Galatia. It comes down against that little yellow, Pamphylia, then that island, Cyprus, and back. Uh, Paul's second missionary journey is much more aggressive. What Paul wants to do every time is push deeper and deeper into the Roman Empire. And he's trying so hard, you, read, you can read about this in the book of Acts, he's trying so hard to get to, that, to the red there, that province of Asia. And why does he want to get to the province of Asia? Well, Asia is where east meets west. It's the most important uh, province in the Roman Empire. It has cities like Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, Miletus, Smyrna. All those cities are the Londons, the New Yorks, the Bostons of the ancient world. Paul wants to get there, but God keeps closing the door. Finally, Paul gets there, and he has a dream of this man from Macedonia. Macedonia is right above uh, Asia. It's, It's the purple. This man in the dream is saying to Paul, Paul, please come, please help. He's begging Paul. So Paul immediately goes to Macedonia. Macedonia now is Europe. Paul is now bringing the gospel to Europe. It's also the home to Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great ignited the greatest empire the world had, had known at that time. And now it's eclipsed by another Western superpower called Rome, Macedonia is also the epicenter of Hellenism. Hellenism is a worldview of the Greeks that we today know this worldview very well. It's still our worldview. It's a worldview uh, that is based on pleasure, comfort, celebrity, being the best, being on top, and it all caters to the individual. In fact, one of the things that I love uh, what's going on in light of this, because as Alexander took his armies from the West to the East, conquering and proclaiming this gospel of Hellenism, and the way he proclaimed it was by planting cities, now all of a sudden, Paul and the Apostles are going from uh, the East and they're going West and they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and they're doing this by planting churches. This is not by accident. So when Paul goes to Macedonia because this man in his dream said, please come, and he's taking this as a dream from the Lord, he sets his sight on the capital of Macedonia, which is a city called Thessaloniki. Again, this, this, this is Alexander the Great's sister. That's her name, Thessaloniki. It's named after her. It's this huge international port city on the major trade route. And what makes this uh, easy for Paul, Paul knows exactly where to go because God in his providence has provided all these pockets of his people consisting of both Jews and Greeks who gather in synagogues in all the major cities of the Roman Empire to worship the God of the Bible. So here's Paul. He's a trained rabbi. He's trained by the best He's head of his class, so he can show up at any synagogue and preach, kind of like Neil Martin. (laughs) Paul spends three weeks in this synagogue in Thessaloniki telling Jews and Greeks about Jesus, and a church is born. I mean, we can read about this in, in Acts 17. Listen to what it says. It says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Hear that. Jews from the synagogue believe in Jesus, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. These are Greeks who are worshiping the God of the Bible and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I like how that says. Some bad characters from the marketplace, they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. I mean, this is almost par for the course wherever Paul goes. They rushed to Jason's house, that's where Paul's saying, in, in search of Paul and Silas, in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city. These men have caused trouble all over the world. And now they come to our city and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city's officials were thrown into turmoil. I mean, that's such a window into the world of the early church. I mean, their challenge is so great. They're essentially up against these two tsunamis. On one hand, you have the tsunami of a Judaism that's so bent inward that it can't see or recognize the Messiah, then you also have this other tsunami of Rome, which is proclaiming itself to be the Messiah. And this infant church that is formed after just three weeks, it gets crushed by these two tsunamis to the point where Paul and Silas have to flee for their lives, And this weighs so heavy on Paul because Paul just feels in his heart that he ditched them in in their hour of great need. And Paul is utterly convinced that this precious, fragile, little movement of Christ is is, is no more. He hardly dares to inquire, but then he sends his disciple Timothy, and that's what we read in our text today, um, actually starting at verse 4. Of chapter three of, of Thessalonians. In fact, when we were with you, says Paul, we kept telling you that we, of course, were going to be persecuted. And it turned out that way. As you well know, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Paul's like, ah, I don't even dare to find out the truth. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distresses and persecutions, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. And for now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. I mean, when Paul gets this news from Timothy that Paul, the church is still alive. And it's not just alive, but it's standing firm. Paul is ecstatic. And you can see that in verses eight and nine. And this is why if you read the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is just laying encouragement upon encouragement upon this church In fact, I want to take some time just to read some of it because as I read it this week, what Paul was expressing to this church in Thessaloniki uh, were so much the same things that have been on my heart for for Crossroads. This church has been amazing. And the waves that, that have pounded on this church, even in the last two years, the waves of COVID and the political and racial divisions in our culture and, and all the cultural change that's going on around us that are just pounding on this church. When I read what Paul was saying to the church in Thessaloniki, that same stuff just resounded in my own heart for Crossroads. Listen to what Paul says. He says, you became imitators of us And of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, and you welcomed it with joy. And so you became a model to all the believers in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the very words of God. For you became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people. For what is our hope, our joy? And our crown in which we will give glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not You? Indeed, You are our glory and our joy. Thank you, Crossroads. It is an honor to serve with You, and we're only in the first quarter, it's barely begun. And Paul now wants to be face-to-face with this church. He wants to be with him. Uh, that's what he's saying in verse 10. He's like, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then here now is Paul's prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and abound for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. That's quite a prayer. I've oftentimes thought that prayer, what what a person prays, how a person prays, is a window into a person's heart. And so through Paul's prayers, we, we can see what Paul values the most, what he really cares about, what he's passionate about. And Paul's concern here and and, and in all his prayers, it's, it's first and foremost for the church. Paul loves the church. His prayer is for the church. He's not praying for the culture around the church or the politic that is over the church or even the tsunamis that are beating up the church. His prayer is simply for the church. And one of the things I did this summer on, on my sabbatical is I devoted a lot of time to studying the church in the first century. And one of the things that really struck me, not just about Paul, but about the, the apostles and, and and the entirety of the early church is how they don't concern themselves with culture or politics. It's just not there. Read the letters that that Paul and and the other apostles write. You're not going to find it. And then I took a really hard look at the politics of that first century world in which the church is, is being birthed into. I mean, they're under imperial Rome this is a polity of total control that demands total allegiance, even demands that everyone pay honor to an emperor that bordered was, was worship. Hail Caesar. Roman polity created tons of cultural wrongs and social injustices. I mean, Rome literally put a price tag on every human being, a price tag that determined where one could go, what one could do, what kind of people one could associate themselves with. It even determined where you sat in the theater, if you could even go to the theater, where you sat in the stadium. It was all done according to your rank. In fact, in any and every social uh, setting in Rome, everything was done according to rank. From where you sat at the table to the quality of food that you got to eat. Roman wives were property. Children were treated as property. In fact, every child born to a Roman father had to get his approval or it was tossed to the garbage heap. How about the sexual ethic? I don't even know where to start with that. There was no sexual ethic. The only ethic that existed in the empire is a wife could not have sex with anyone but her husband. She was his property. That's the only ethic. Or slavery. Whoever Rome conquered, the masses of the conquered were sold into slavery. Conquered Greeks, Jews, Gauls, Celts, Germans, a quarter of Rome's population is slave. This is just a small taste of the empire in which the church is birthed. Read the letters. Paul, Peter, James, John, they, they never instruct the church to be political or to even seek political or social change. It's not there. Even slavery, this gross injustice of that time, Paul writes to his congregations consisting of Jews and Greeks, some of whom are slaves in pagan Roman households. Look at what Paul instructs them. He's not concerned with Roman practices and Roman norms or take the sexual practices of Rome every feasible form of sexual immorality was being practiced and it was considered normal. Paul never calls the church to take on these practices and norms. But you know what he does do? Read, read Philemon. He says, in the church, Philemon, there is no slavery not in God's house. Read what he writes on sexual immorality to the church. Church in Ephesus, there ought not even be a hint, a whiff of it among you. And Paul would say that, and the New Testament writers would would say that about everything, about racism in the church, not a hint. About inequality, not a hint. About idolatry and materialism, not a hint. Because what they were concerned with is we need to take care of God's house, God's family. That we are something radically different from Rome, radically different than the world around us, radical in the way Jesus was radical. And that is what Paul's praying here. Look at what he prays. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. His prayers for the church. He's concerned about the church. And the two things that he's essentially praying for here is first, love, that it would abound for each other more and more, and the second is holiness. And since our church talks a lot about love, let me start with the latter, holiness. He says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. And you can't talk about holiness without first talking about God. God is holy. When is the last time you heard a sermon on the holiness of God? When is the last time we've heard a sermon on God's call for us, his church, his family to be holy? If you can't remember, that's an indictment on me. That's an indictment on us. I mean, there are so many words that that you could use to describe God, that the Bible uses to describe God, to describe his character. But right now, the angels are gathered around his throne, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In fact, when the Hebrew language wants to emphasize something, to describe something as ultimate, they just double the word. So I could tell you that I fell into a pit, but if I fell into the pit of all pits, I would say I fell into a pit pit. Does that make sense? A pit pit would be one big, massive pit. Uh, Okay, another doubling of words that the Hebrew likes to use is peace. And and when it does it, we translate it perfect peace. Like Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. But in the actual Hebrew, it's just peace, peace. The only tripling found in our Hebrew Bible is holy holy, holy. Because God isn't just holy. He isn't even just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And then when you... Consider what, what holiness actually means. It, it, it means to be wholly other. It means to be completely set apart. It means to be utterly distinct. So to say that God is holy is to say that he is so awesome. He is so set apart. He's so perfectly and stunningly beyond anything in all creation that the only thing a creature can do in his presence is to fall on its Face and say, "Holy, holy, holy." Right. When is the last time? When is the last time you have been face down in the presence of a holy God? You and I, whether we know this or not, are—we're <laughs> barely even dust in the presence of this holy God. And I don't say that to put anyone down. It's just how exalted God is. And my heart needs to hear this. I need this preached to my heart because my heart can so quickly minimize God. We're we're so quick to bring God down to our level because God actually, in his amazing grace, actually stoops to our level, but We must never forget from where he's stooped from. I mean, when I read passages like this in Revelation chapter 6, when the heavens recede like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks, the mountains, they called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. I mean, even Isaiah, when he's brought into the holiness of God, where he sees him, uh, all he can say is, "I'm I'm ruined. I'm undone. For my eyes have seen the King." And this is all throughout the Bible that when people encounter God, it's always this kind of response. And I want to stand before him someday and, and, and be shamed by how, how small I I made him or, or be ashamed about how I preached about him. Holy, holy, holy. And the call that God has always placed on his people. Be holy as I am holy. And yeah, we know that that's all over the New Testament, but then also it gets picked up, or in the, it's all over the Old Testament, but it also gets picked up in the New Testament in places like 1 Peter 1:15, verse 16, uh, where Peter writes, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's the call on our life. It's it's to be holy. And and, and then when we understand what holiness means, it's this call that we're set apart, that we're distinct, that we stand out, that we're radically different from the world around us. Are we? See, and for Paul, this is something that he has been taught his whole life. It's because he's Jewish. Devoted Jews have radically stood out from the world for a whole millennia, from the way that they dress to the way that they eat to the way that they uh, organize their time and keep Sabbath to their sexual ethic of purity. I mean, the world didn't have a a sexual ethic of of what purity and holiness look like until the God of the Bible spoke Which is why when people are like left wondering uh, why is our sexual uh, ethic leaving us today, who's listening to God? Look at what Paul talks about in the next chapter, in chapter 4. Starting with verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be holy that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his or her, her own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And this just further begs the question, okay, what does it mean to be holy? And this is where we could go down so many rabbit trails, but I don't want to get bogged down in the rabbit trails because we don't need to. <laughs> the simple answer to that question of what does it mean to be holy is simply Jesus. We just need to look at his life, we need to listen to his teachings, namely the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, because that whole sermon is about holiness. It's Jesus talking to his followers about how we are set apart for God for the sake of the world. I mean, even those powerful images that Jesus uses right at the beginning of that sermon uh, when he talks about how you are to be salt, how you are to be light. Ask yourself, what do salt and light have in common? They're both distinct. Salt provides a distinct flavor. Light also is so distinct that you can see it miles away when it's in darkness. And then the rest of that sermon, Jesus just flushes out what this distinctiveness looks like in his followers. He says things like, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. You've heard it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, if anyone looks at someone and calls them a fool, you've killed that person with your words. He says, you've heard it was said, love your friends and hate your enemies. I said, He says, even the pagans do that. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for them who hurt you and mistreat you. If they hit you on this side of the cheek, turn the other side also. And then he concludes the sermon by saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This has always been the call on God's people be holy says, God, as I am holy. Years ago, an English professor at Texas A&M had her students read the Sermon on the Mount and and, and write a short essay response, and she was just literally flabbergasted by the response um, that she wrote her own essay uh, on this project. And she includes some of the students' responses um, that they what they said about the Sermon on the Mount. One, uh, One person said, The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it might be a sin. Another person wrote, I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and it made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another person wrote this: the things asked in this sermon are crazy. To look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. The professor was so shocked by the response because the vast majority of students were repulsed by this sermon. It made them angry. It's because holiness... The pursuit of holiness, walking out holiness, elicits that kind of response. Rudolf Otto, the, the, the great theologian in his book, The Idea of the Holy, says, anytime we encounter another living entity that is so beyond us, so extraordinary, so awesome, it's normal to have this schizophrenic response where we are both drawn towards but repulsed at the same time. And listen this holiness that Jesus walked out it was distinct not even just from the world around him, but it was utterly distinct even from the holiness pursuits of his day because the Pharisees too were all about holiness, living this holy life. But for them, holiness was external. It was how I look, how do I appear, how well do I perform? And for Jesus, holiness is internal. It starts with a person's heart. But more importantly, holiness to a Pharisee is separation. It's all about living this life where where we separate ourselves from sin and sinners. See, this is where Jesus' images of salt and light just shatter these notions of holiness because just think about salt right now. (laughs) How bland would your food be right now without salt? Your meat, chips corn on the cob. I mean, salt flavors food. It, it, it brings out the flavors. It brings out the best qualities in the food that we eat. And no one except for my wife says, oh, this salt is so good. She actually does eat salt by itself. Um, no, but what people do say is like, wow, this steak is so tasty and delicious. Why? It's, this is what salt does. It brings out the best in the things that it's applied to. So think about what Jesus is saying about us when he he says we are to be salt. He's saying that we are to be applied to the world. We are to make our world taste good. So as we're applied to, to, to friendships and teams and family, as we're applied to our communities and our work and our school and our city and our nation, we are to bring out the best And just look at Jesus. No one did this like him. Wherever he went, whoever he is with, especially those by whom all appearances were no good, he was so good at bringing out the best. And when you also add to this in the ancient world, this this was their preservative. They had no refrigeration, and so salt was applied to food, namely to meat, to preserve it, to keep it from rot, to keep it from spoil, and, and just let that imagery just fall on us because Jesus is saying that about us. Like salt, we are to be applied to every aspect of our world so that we preserve it, that we keep it from rotting and decay. Or think about light. I mean, light is useless to darkness until it's actually placed in darkness, which is why Jesus says, don't hide your light from the darkness, but let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. In fact, I love this word for good because the good deeds here is not just good in a moral sense. It's it's the word for beauty. It's it's good in in the beautiful sense. It's the call that Jesus is putting on our life that that when the world sees us, they'll see something beautiful, they'll see a beautiful life, they'll see beautiful deeds, they'll see a beautiful walk with Jesus. This is holiness. And see, this is why Paul prays what he does before he prays for holiness. He says, may the Lord increase your love for one another. May your love abound and just spill all over. And see, I think a lot of us almost see love and holiness as two separate entities, but love really is the essence of holiness, because where love abounds, holiness abounds, and where holiness abounds, love will always abound. Because the greatest imperative there is, is Shema, is to love God with absolutely everything that we have. That is holiness. And it is to love our neighbor. It is to love people who are just like us. That is holiness. They will know us by our love, said Jesus. Do they? You know, this call to love, in one sense, it's, it, it's, it's so basic, and yet in another sense, it's, it's, it's so lacking today. Especially when we plow into what this word actually means to us, because love today, like truth and so many other things, is just feeling-based which is why when we talk about love today, we talk about being in love. Being in love is essentially saying that I feel love because that is what love has become. It's something that we feel, which is why this love is so fickle. It's because our feelings can be so fickle, which is why people are fickle and relationships are so fickle. But C.S. Lewis actually talks about two kinds of love. He talks about need love and he talks about give love. Need love is I love you just because I need you. It's loving someone out of a state of emptiness, and I love you so that you can fill me. I love you for what you can do for me. I love you for my sake. That's need love. And C.S. Lewis says that need love eventually destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys teams. It destroys Uh, any kind of relationship that it's in because it's really selfishness disguised as love. I love you for what you do for me. And it's all about taking. But give love, says C.S. Lewis, it's what flows out of the overflow of a person's life who is already filled with love. And this is the kind of love that Jesus brought to the world. And he said to his disciples, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved out of the overflow of of, of who he was. He gave up everything for us. I mean, he said, greater love has no one than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. Imagine if we could do that. Imagine if we could lay down our differences. Imagine if we could lay down all the things that divide us. I'm talking about us. Imagine if we could lay down our rights. If we could lay down our need to be right. If we could just lay it all down. Imagine if our marriages were defined by this holy love. Spouses just laying their lives down for each other. Imagine our families, if what defined our families was this kind of love. Imagine wherever we gathered, both big and small, where we would come not to take, not to get, but to literally look around and say, whose life can I lay my life down for right now? Because if you want to know how the early church transformed their world for Christ, it wasn't by hanging on to their rights, even though they were losing their rights as Christians. It wasn't making Rome into this political or social economic thing that they wanted Rome to be. People's hearts are changed at the end of the day when they experience the love of Jesus lived out by someone who is just like Jesus, And when a heart is changed, a life is changed. And when lives are changed, a church is changed. And when a church is changed, we get real salty. And we shine like stars in a wicked and a depraved world. And then neighborhoods change. And schools change. And cities change. So really the question then becomes, and I'll end with this, how do we get this holy love? How do we become holy? Of course we have to seek it. We have to want it. We have to pray for it as Paul is praying uh, this for the church. But this is not a technique, nor will it come through moral prescriptions. I mean, all the moral laws in the world cannot change a selfish, sinful heart. We need a power to come into us. And what is that power? I'll make it this simple. Paul writes... He, Jesus. He, Jesus. Think about him. We can say about Jesus, holy, holy, holy. That Jesus became sin. Our sin. So that we could become the righteousness of God. And when you look at how Jesus became our sin and then even ask yourself, why did he do that? Why did he absorb all our sin on that cross? And you know the answer to that? Because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. That's when the penny drops from here to here and a heart is changed. And it's time for the church to take care of its house. God, we sang that you would revive us, change us, transform us. May we see, God, all that you have done for us in Christ. May we see ourselves in light of you, a holy, holy God. And what a holy God did to make us holy. In fact, right now, we're gonna just uh, end this whole series. Instead of talking about prayer, let's pray. We're taking all the prayers of Paul that we've looked at we're going to put them in, on slides on the screen, one at a time, to allow the Holy Spirit to cause us to pray, however the Spirit leads. And, and, and maybe some of you even want to pray out loud. But right now, let's just, uh, let's bow our hearts before our Heavenly Father in heaven and, 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 and let's pray. with Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. May God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him more. Let's pray, church. Give our hearts a desire to know you. God, may it be the driving passion of our lives to know you. And God, with that, give us a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. For this prayer, Paul, I pleaded with the Lord. Take it away. Remove this thorn. But God said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Whatever those thorns are right now, just cry out to God. Plead with him. Pray to him. He's a good father. Prayer, Paul. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. God James 1, verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask. So, Father, we ask that you give us great wisdom. wisdom for the path that we are called to walk wisdom for this time in which we live god give us wisdom in this prayer and i pray that you being rooted Established in love. For God so loved the world that he gave. God, may we be rooted in that love. Your give love, God. May it overflow in our lives that we would offer give love to the world. Laying our lives down. God, may we know that love. God, may we live loved. May God strengthen our hearts so we may be holy God, Paul knows we can't be holy on our own. We can't muscle up the strength. We can't just strive to do more and be more. God, we need you. Spirit of a living God, fall afresh on us. Fill us, mold us, use us, change us, transform us.